So the headline is the Biden administration is not only defending family separation, by doing so, it's defending torture. In this first month of a new year, January 2022, as the U.S. marks the one-year anniversary of President Joe Biden's administration, while also commemorating the life and work of the late civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I can't help but wonder what King would have to say about one of the greatest human rights crimes in recent U.S. history, family separation. For those of us with eyes on the border, who also campaigned hard to get Biden elected, the hope of substantive differences between his administration and that of the former guy in U.S. border and immigration policy are fast fading. We see this in Biden's reactivation of Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, which I drill into in Episode 9 of Witness Radio. Also in the continued, fallacious, and likely illegal application of Title 42, which resulted in the mass expulsion of thousands in 2021, including to date over 15,000 Haitians seeking refuge from a country roiled by chaos, violence, political instability, and environmental devastation, only to be returned without any due process under the law. Finally, there's the Biden administration's stance with regard to addressing the suffering of families of over 5,000 children stolen by Uncle Sam under Trump's zero-tolerance policy in 2018. As of September 2021, 1,677 children had yet to be reunited with their families, including 381 children whose status and whereabouts remain unknown. Joining me to discuss this issue today is Witness Radio executive producer, civil rights lawyer, and human rights scholar, Camilo Perez Bustillo. Camilo was at ground zero when the practice of separating migrating families as a means to deter others from coming was piloted in El Paso before being rolled out as policy across the borderlands in April 2018. The American Civil Liberties Union followed with a class action suit, the matter of Ms. L versus ICE, on behalf of 2,000 asylum-seeking families forcibly separated by agents of the U.S. government. The cries of kids in Border Patrol cages sparked worldwide indignation and popular national protest, forcing Trump and co. to halt the policy three months later, on June 20th. But the burden of responsibility for the crimes committed now falls to the Biden administration, which in December 2021 walked away from a global settlement in the Mizell case. Several additional cases, brought in New York, Pennsylvania, and in California, now present the Biden administration with a Sophie's Choice, acknowledge the irreparable damage done to these families by the U.S. government, and negotiate a legal remedy at the risk of sparking the further ire of Trump world and the GOP prior to the U.S. midterm elections, or shield the U.S. government from a settlement and, in effect, defend government-sanctioned torture in the form of separating families. On January 5th, the Biden administration staked its claim to a position when it moved to actively defend these cases in federal court in response to the case brought in Northern California. We start there. Witness Radio. Hey, Camilo. Hi, Sarah. 
I really wanted to talk to you today about an issue that I know is weighing heavily on your mind. Am I right in thinking that a democratic government with a professed desire to be more humane on border issues is trying to sabotage a case that rests on the torture of family and children? What they're looking for primarily is for the case to be dismissed. Their argument Mm. is that the case should not proceed. That although theoretically speaking, they don't agree with a policy that promotes the separation of families, and they think it was inhumane, that as a matter of law, the federal government is free to choose such a policy because that falls within their legitimate discretion as a governmental authority. And so bottom line, they are defending family separation, which applies not just to this case, but to any other case brought by any of the families and children who were separated during the Trump administration. And are you referring to the ACLU case named uh, Ms. L? Exactly, which is the initial precedent-setting case that compelled Trump to back off on family separation and to rescind the executive order that had gotten it going. This is the last week of June 2018, filed uh, during the course of 2018, when basically when when the sort of pattern that we came to identify as family separation was first being identified as a national pattern. That it wasn't just in the El Paso pilot program, but it was something that was being done throughout the border region. The Biden administration refused to negotiate in good faith in the ACLU case. There was a leak of what amount of damages was being talked about per family. Biden himself was directly questioned at a press conference about this said that he thought it was garbage. It's not clear if he was referring to the negotiation or to the sum or to the very idea of payoff. Bottom line is the federal government stopped the the negotiations. All right. And let's go back a little bit further to that El Paso program. If I remember correctly, the Trump administration was piloting family separation quite quietly in El Paso when you were there working at the Hope Border Institute and you all actually saw it. And I remember reading, I believe in a February, 2017 issue of the- It's an annual report. The report was issued in December of 2017. I had just joined Hope that fall in September, October, 2017. Mm -hmm. And within a few weeks of my getting there, we began to get reports in part through leaks from the Border Patrol, that there was family separation happening, that there were specific instances of family separation that could be identified. And we confronted the regional leadership of CBP and of the Border Patrol at a public meeting, uh, a kind of uh, open air hearing in November, 2017. And we had Border Patrol agents say that, yes, it was happening, but it wasn't a policy. Mm. 
and they also sent us a, uh, a written document to that effect, basically acknowledging, yes, there may have been cases of family separation, but it wasn't pursuant to a policy. What they didn't tell us is what we were later able to, to document, you know, everybody else has been able to document since then, is that there was a pilot project to test whether or not there should be a national policy. And so what we had stumbled uh -huh. on, in effect, was the model for what became zero tolerance and was officially uh, declared by Jeff Sessions as attorney general, April 6, 2018. Right, right. I want to get to this idea of discretion because it feels like we've just drawn in backward chronology a line from that El Paso pilot project that Hope stumbled upon to today, yep, where yep. you're saying that the defense of the suit on the part of Biden's government is now saying it was wrong. We admit that separating families is not a good plan, but the government is free to show discretion. And for me, that I think was exemplified in Jeff Sessions' announcement of zero tolerance, where he justified it by referring to a biblical verse that was also used to justify enslavement of Black Africans back in the day that says something along the lines of, you know, trust your government because they know best. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, I think we have to push back really hard on this. What the Biden administration is saying is that family separation was wrong, but Trump had the right to do it within an arsenal of an acceptable range of discretion that governmental authorities have because immigration and border policy involves what are called plenary powers that are replete with that kind of discretion. That's why, and I think you're absolutely right in your, in your question to begin with, that discretion is like the operative framework, in mm -hmm. effect, punishing families by separating them to dissuade them, to deter them from seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. That's the heart of all of this, right? And so discretion is the key. What the Biden administration is saying is that family separation is a valid policy choice, although a choice that it would not make, mm -hmm. but a valid one were it to do so. Okay, so that brings up two questions in my mind. One is, if this goes through and the case is dismissed, then not only does it set a precedent for all other family separation suits to come, but it also means that the perpetrators of this violence, i.e. Donald Trump, Jeff Sessions, Stephen Miller, can never then be prosecuted for the effect of their actions, which was torture. And the United States government is a signatory to the Convention Against Torture and other uh, instruments that are meant to keep these kinds of things from happening. And we know now, we knew in our hearts then, but the colleagues at Stanford have provided proof that the families, both the children and the parents who were separated, experienced this as torture. So how does the U.S. government then get discretion to torture? Exactly. And ultimately, I think that's, that's also the headline. I mean, in effect, 
I mean, if you, again, if you connect all the dots, what the Biden administration is saying is that even if the discretion that was exercised ended up, resulted in unconstitutional conduct or conduct that otherwise violates, for example, international human rights norms, which mm -hmm. are part of US law, like the torture convention, even if that's true, you still can't sue and get damages. Wow. So in effect, there is not only discretion to separate families, but the predictable results of that separation, which is torture, which is an international human rights crime. It's classified as a crime against humanity by the International Criminal Court in Article 7 of the Rome Statute. So the headline is the Biden administration is not only defending family separation, by doing so, it's defending torture. Right, right. So in your opinion, is this a move on the part of the government that is intended to save its own ass without looking forward into the future and seeing the probability, possibility, probability, I'm not sure which word to use, that another Trump administration or Trump-like administration could walk in and based on the precedent of this suit, if it's one, just be like, we're going to separate families whether you like it or not, because it has been lawfully deemed we can. Yeah, that's the problem with the Biden administration's logic, I think, the, in terms of the position that it's taken in court, uh -huh. um, you know, it could easily be swallowed up by this itself. And so, so I think, I think there's just kind of a bunch of different layers here. One layer is one of the reasons that government crimes of this kind, you know, we have to understand family separation as a criminal policy in terms mm -hmm. of international law. One of the reasons that those are so serious is because they carry over from one government to another. Mm -hmm. Because the way international law works is that the ultimate responsibility is not that of any particular government or individual political official, mm -hmm. but of the state as such. And in other words, the state is a permanent structure, right? In other words, whether it's the Trump administration yesterday or the Biden administration today or the you know, Harris administration tomorrow, they will have continuing liability for what happened. Right. And of course, you know, there will be a, a, a narrower sense of accountability, which is which officials did what when. And that's really clear, you know, Steve Miller and Trump and Sessions and their ilk and Nielsen, uh -huh. the head of DHS, et cetera. I mean, that's all in the historical record. Fine. But in terms of who ultimately pays the damages, Mm -hmm. It will be the state, which means whatever government is in power at the time, and it means today the Biden administration. Now, that, mm -hmm. of course, is untenable for the Biden administration, given the fact that it's facing 10 months from now a midterm election and does not want to be positioned as the defender of families and children and parents who were engaged themselves in supposedly criminal conduct 
which is crossing the border without authorization. Because that's mm -hmm. remember, that's what zero tolerance meant. Zero tolerance meant 100% criminal prosecution in federal court of every single person who crossed the border without authorization, e.g. what are called by the right illegal immigrants. That's where the concept of illegality comes from. It's right. by crossing the border without authorization or by and, having a continued presence in the U.S. without the proper documents. Yeah. And to clarify that, does that also include people who actually walk across a bridge and knock on the door of Customs and Border Patrol and say, hello, I'm here to seek asylum? No, it doesn't, because I mean, then they're sort of surrendering themselves into custody, but there's discretion at the heart of all of this. Mm -hmm. How do you interpret what is meant by um, having the intent or not to enter or remain in the U.S. without authorization? All mm -hmm. of that's in the hands of prosecutors, which is the, you know, the U.S. attorneys and how in each district they interpret this. Well, wait, doesn't it start with the Border Patrol agents who are the initial point of contact for these people? For sure, but, it, but it's up to the U.S. attorneys whether they prosecute or not. But also Border Patrol agents and CBP agents using their own discretion to decide, you know, who to separate and who to kick back. Oh, and of course, of course. I mean, the discretion goes all the way down to the individual Border Patrol agent. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes which essentially holds the life or death of those families in their hands, their death as families, right? If not their physical death. Right. And from a historical point of view, I mean, families have always been separated as a means of torture by our, our government and by enslavers and by folks who want to break up the native populations. It's a part of the fascist playbook. It was the separate families. Practice, absolutely. During African slavery and during Native American genocide. If, if I can just actually echo that for a moment, Sarah. Please, is that, please. You know, there are three different families, two of the three families that are plaintiffs in this California case are indigenous families from Guatemala, from the wow. Maya Mam community. These are the same who have been disproportionately represented yeah. among those who've been held in sites like Tornillo and Homestead, which yes. of course were at the origins of Witness as an organization mm -hmm. and at the origins of these policies. What's really striking is that all of that broader context that you just you know, brought into the conversation is directly applicable to these children because in Guatemala, as part of genocide, there were thousands of children forcibly separated from their families as part of an overall process of forced displacement. Mm -hmm. So now it's happening internationally across borders, but it's mm -hmm. the same indigenous communities in Guatemala targeted then and yep. that have ultimately been targeted in cases like this. And that gets me to my second question, which was the role of the international legal community in all of this. Um, you said that uh, torture, and which is what family separation is, we've established that, is a crime against humanity. It therefore is seen as an international crime in international law where the state is the perpetrator of the violence. Is there a role that the international legal community can play in litigating this case 
should the Biden administration be successful in getting it thrown out? You know, I think that there's a question which can be answered through the inter-American human rights system. There's a court and there's a commission. This is a system that is heavily financed and supported by the U.S. diplomatically, what's known as the Organization of American States, the OAS. It's a really key instrument of U.S. foreign policy. The problem is, ironically enough, although that system is heavily supported and financed by the U.S., the U.S. has never recognized that court, the mm -hmm. Inter-American Court of Human Rights. It does recognize the commission. The commission sits in Washington, D.C., in fact. It would be hard for it not to be recognized. Um, and there have been cases brought before the commission, complaints regarding U.S. border policy. This has been something that's been done for 30 years or more by advocates. But if the U.S. government now speaking through the Biden administration in San Francisco is not willing to have a U.S. judge mm -hmm. rule on this case? Are they going to be listening to an intergovernmental body that has an international standing like the Inter-American Commission? I wouldn't bet on that. And I think what's striking is it's not just about the impunity that may result from all of this, from the stance that the Biden administration has taken, impunity as to those responsible, Steve Miller, uh, you know, Nielsen, et cetera, Jeff Sessions from the prior administration and Trump himself, but it also means impunity internationally. In other words, precisely what the US today under the Biden administration, under Secretary of State Blinken is calling Russia to task for as to Ukraine, or mm -hmm. what's going on at the border between Poland and Belarus, or what it's saying about China and the Olympics and the Uyghurs or the Tibetans or Hong Kong. Exactly what the U.S. is complaining about internationally is that governments like Russia and China violate human rights with impunity, are not willing to be held accountable internationally. What is absolutely clear is not only do these cases involve what should be understood as torture, pursuant to international law, but also these were in effect forced disappearances. What uh -huh. forced disappearances means, and there's just like there's a convention against torture, there's a convention against enforced disappearances. The way they're defined is, for example, when you hold detainees incommunicado and do not permit them to communicate with their families. Uh -huh. What we had with family separation and the mass detention that came with it was the children of one family held in different facilities, the parents held in yet other facilities mm -hmm. and communication made impossible between them so right. that they did not know each other's whereabouts for significant periods of time, which further intensified the trauma which right. was inflicted on them. So the right. torture in part is the torture of having been forcibly disappeared into the U.S. gulag. Right. That's what happened during family separation. And that's what the Biden administration is saying was okay because it was a legitimate policy choice. In wanting to dismiss this case. Yeah. So getting back to the case then, why wouldn't the Biden administration say, you know what? It was wrong. The burden is on us now to admit that. And therefore, we are going 
to do everything in our power and spare no expense at making sure families are finally reunified. Why wouldn't they do that? Why wouldn't they do the right thing here? Because for them, the political price is too high. I mean, I think what's interesting is that clearly everything you just laid out would be the, the right thing to do. That would be, you know, in the abstract ethical sense. But the political arithmetic doesn't add up for them. I think partly because of the timing, partly because the amounts were leaked, and partly because, you know, what we're talking about in this case is not just, you know, some friendly funding for necessary therapy. What we're talking about is what are called compensatory and punitive damages. Compensatory mm -hmm. means like, you know, what are the actual harms that were incurred by the victims of these crimes? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and what do those look like? How do you quantify those hours of therapy or hours of rehabilitation the children or the families might need in mental and physical terms? But the other layer of it is what are called punitive damages, which is you did this family separation knowingly and deliberately chose to do this because you wanted to inflict as much harm as possible on a vulnerable group of people because you wanted to send a message of staying away. Essentially right. what Vice President Harris said in Guatemala, do not come. And that cost is too high in political terms. It's not about the budget, right? Because I mean, there is money for this in the federal budget when right. liability is found in a particular case. Bottom line, the calculus is, you know, in general, midterms have very low turnout. So you're not going to have this massive pro-Biden vote anyway, particularly the way it appears the new COVID outbreak is being mishandled. And, you know, everybody says that his presidency rides on COVID and so on and so forth. If that's the lead issue, he's not doing well on that. That's, that's mm -hmm. pretty clear in public opinion. But beyond that, the core groups that would be, let's say, motivated by his administration doing the right thing around these cases is sorely outweighed in terms of who turns out by those who would excoriate the administration for paying money to illegal immigrants mm -hmm. for their own irresponsibility. The bottom line is there are more votes in hurting immigrants right. than there are in helping them. Okay. That's what the calculus is, because it means continued power. I mean, you know, in the end, of course, that's what it's about. I think the problem is, for many of us, it's difficult to wrap our heads around the fact that this is an administration that many of us voted for thinking it would act differently. Mm -hmm. In practice has shown, particularly at the border and particularly in immigration policy, the administration has betrayed those who were at the core of the votes that brought it to power. Yeah. And the yeah. betrayal of these immigrant families and the defense of family separation is part of that deeper treason. So we would question, number one, any administration that would consider family separation and detention a legitimate policy choice. Number two, that the Trump officials involved were immune, that no compensatory or punitive damages should be paid. And what we're saying, and this is something that is clearly established by international standards, which the US normally says it supports, 
courts when they're applied to its adversaries. For every wrong, there has to be a remedy. That's one of the most basic principles of the rule of law in the US or anywhere else that proclaims it. Mm -hmm. For every wrong, there has to be a remedy. But not only that, when the wrong is of such a magnitude as the wrongs in this case, when we're talking about an international crime like torture and forced disappearance, that triggers what's called transitional justice. Okay. That means you have the right to truth, justice, reparations, guarantees that this won't happen again, what are called guarantees of non-repetition, and a framework that's been defined as that of restorative justice. What Bishop Tutu sought to do through the Truth and Reconciliation mm -hmm. Commission in South Africa, that's restorative justice. What many are trying to do in the US currently locally in the wake of Black Lives Matter in terms of local histories of racism and oppression. What uh, the Equal Justice Institute is trying to do in terms of the history of lynching in the US, et cetera, or the history of uh -huh. slavery, what the 1619 uh -huh. Project is trying to do. What we're saying is all of that has to be applied to uh -huh. what we know as family separation and detention. They right. are crimes of the same standing and have to be addressed in the same way. And the Biden administration is saying, not only will it not pay, not only will it not settle those cases, but these cases should not proceed in court. People should not even have the day in court to try and make their case. And so across the board, what we have is an issue of the US having to be subjected to the same standards of transitional justice that traditionally have been applied outside the US to authoritarian regimes. And this is something that has a really important historical echo and precedent. When Robert Jackson, the US prosecutor at Nuremberg stood up before the Nuremberg Tribunal in his opening argument, and at the time he was a sitting member of the US Supreme Court, he'd taken leave to become prosecutor at Nuremberg. What he said is that what was different about Nuremberg is that it meant that the allies were seeking to hold war criminals responsible in a court of law that could someday judge the US and the allies for similar kinds of crime. The rule of law is always reciprocal in that sense. If you seek to have it applied to somebody else, that means that you are saying that you're willing to have it applied to you. Yeah. The US has tended to have it only one way, in a unidirectional sense. It's always sought to apply that rule of law internationally to others. Now it's time for that to come home, for the chickens to come home to roost, as Malcolm X would say. And yeah. so family separation is the tip of that iceberg, along with, of course, the issues about reparations for slavery and Jim Crow and structural racism, and against, of course, indigenous people, Native Americans in the US. Those are the three great crimes. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring him up and Nuremberg trials because that was formative to me as a young person, the idea of this web of responsibility that we're all caught up in it and we're all complicit and that needs to prevail. And it, it doesn't in our current world all these years later, the idea of the web of responsibility just, it's elusive. Well, that's why it's time for the U.S. 
and the US government to be put in the docket. And sadly, for the Biden administration to be put into the docket, because in other words, what they're opening up here is if this case moves forward, if their motion is denied, which we hope it is, if a trial happens, they're going to end up being found liable and responsible for what the Trump administration did before. Right. So they, they can't have it both ways. Right. A hundred percent. The date to keep in mind is March 3rd, 2022. I believe that's when the hearing on this case will be discussed. And until then, we will be pushing very hard against it. Absolutely. And again, I think what we have to do is ask the Biden administration and ask ourselves, is this what we voted for? Mm -hmm. Is this what the Biden administration said it was going to stand for? And yeah. doesn't it have to be consistent with the positions it took in campaigning in federal court? 100%. I'm with you, Hermano. How about we, we end it there for today? Thank you so much for taking the time. I just really enjoy these charlas. I look forward to it too. Thanks so much, Sarah. Un abrazo. Y besos. Gracias, Sarah. Thanks and gratitude to Witness Radio executive producer, Professor Camilo Perez Bustillo, our Patreon patrons, without whom we could not produce this show, and to you, our listeners. I'm Sarah Towell, host and director of Witness Radio, where we aim to discuss all the issues plaguing the U.S. immigration system today. This is why we witness. Subscribe, rate, and review Witness Radio on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please consider becoming a patron of Witness Radio if you haven't already. Just go to patreon.com slash witnessradio and sign up. We'll see you here, there, and everywhere. Witness Radio is produced by Livia Brock.